Hello, this is screenwriter, novelist, and Walter Hill devotee, C. Courtney Joyner. And this is fellow uh, Walter Hill devotee, Henry Park. Also, I'm the Western film editor for True West magazine, and I'm a screenwriter. And we're here to talk about Extreme Prejudice, which, Henry, as we know, had an extremely long period of writing and development and even a rather complicated shooting history to uh, arrive at uh, the movie that was finally released by uh, Carolco in uh, 1987. That's right, 1987. So that was 11 years after this film was first announced. That's right. And John Milius, uh, his original screenplay, which uh, bears so many similarities to other projects that he was uh, involved with, uh, including Apocalypse Now, uh, as far as the formation of this commando unit, and even these opening scenes uh, in one of John's uh, drafts of Apocalypse Now, he has a group of uh, Marines taking on uh, anti-war protesters in an airport, and uh, they are bound together and they beat up the protesters, and then uh, they stick together and admit to nothing to no one. And uh, here we have a special forces unit that uh, is coming together for a very secret reason that we don't yet understand. Uh, but in Milius's script, as you know, Henry, this sequence that we are seeing here just in the airport, introducing all these characters, and we've already seen Michael Ironside and Bill Forsyth, here's Larry Scott, uh, is almost 15 pages long. That's right. It's 15 pages long with uh, narration uh, about who each person is, and there's it's all taking place during a, a, a military award ceremony, and it's it's real involved. Uh, whereas this, boy, does this cut to the chase a lot more. And it is also as we, we'll go through and discuss the different writers involved uh, with this project. Uh, it's certainly the even the writing style, uh, Milius's writing style at the time that he first drafted uh, Extreme Prejudice, runs completely counter to Walter Hill's writing style. Uh, the script is very dense, and uh, even uh, going this is the old old school way. Even has camera angles and things like that, which of course, all of that has been uh, jettisoned, and there is. Uh, great Clancy Brown, who's one of my favorite Frankenstein monsters, by the way, who uh, <laughs> was a wonderful uh, creature in The Bride. Right. Yeah. Matt Mulhern. They're having fun with the, <laughs> the variety of heights there. Yes. Yes, it's, it, this is a very nice uh, sequence, just bringing all the characters together from so many flights and so many areas, and boom. There's my Ironside. Ironside. Yes. What what a sinister presence he always is, especially when he's wearing dark glasses. And um, one of the things with Ironside, I, I just always always think of and love is his work in uh, Canadian films, particularly with Cronenberg. And Scanners remains just. Oh yeah, it, it, I always think first of Scanners when I think of Ironside. Absolutely, it just exploded into our memories, literally. <laughs> and. Uh, and of course, being a, being a Canadian actor, uh, I mean, he's he's very fine and talented, and you know would have done well anyway, I'm sure. But it certainly helped when he would be 
like there'd be an American film shooting in Canada and they need a certain percentage of uh, Canadian cast. Uh, he was one of the great go-to guys because he's just such a such a intense, fine character actor. Absolutely. And uh, in fact, we should note that the title of this film, Extreme Prejudice, uh, goes back again to Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, Colonel Willard, which is a name that was in the original Milius draft uh, uh -huh. of this script, uh, is given his assignment, it is to terminate Colonel Kurtz with extreme prejudice. Right. So this is, uh, you know, something the uh, military, if you will, standing mm -hmm. of these characters and the way he Milius wanted this story to go. Uh, was something that I think is truly the architect of this structure. And, in fact, it does remain. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, one of the things just about, to me, the whole extreme prejudice, uh, terminate with extreme prejudice, uh, just where it came from. I understand the first time it was publicly used in a non-military uh, circle was in 1969 in the New York Times. Uh, where it was used in a couple of articles uh, about the Vietnam War. And um, terminating without prejudice, I learned, means fire an agent or operative but allow possible future employment. Terminate with prejudice means the op was considered unsuitable for future employment. And terminate with extreme prejudice was never really an official phrase, but it was sort of a, a flip way of referring to somebody uh, who needs to be killed. And in this case, um, it it's interesting that you it kind of has uh, double meanings because there's so many people in so many gun sites throughout this movie. We're not quite sure who is, you know, uh, needs to exercise extreme prejudice against who. But uh, we're introduced here to our Rangers, Rip Torn and Nick Nolte, immediately, which goes against uh, really the structure of the Milius script. And John Milius was, was to direct this movie for quite a long time, and it took substantial shifting from studio to studio. Uh, and finally, when uh, the opportunity, of course, he was rewriting, but when the opportunity came to make this film as a director, uh, he opted instead to make Big Wednesday. So the script now was out there. Uh, Ted Kotcheff was involved with it. Uh, Jonathan Demme was involved with it. And then finally, when Walter Hill came along, they, now where the, uh, for example, Derek Washburn was brought in. Now he had written, of course, he'd won the Academy Award for writing The Deer Hunter, but also had written The Border, which... Right. hit so many of the same grace notes as this particular film. And uh, is wonderful, Warren Oates' performance in that movie, and Nicholson is very good. I've always felt that film was undervalued. But I could see exactly why they would ask him to get involved with this film. And when Walter Hill came along uh, and got involved, uh, the first person he asked to work on it with him was Larry Gross, and of course, because they were doing 48 Hours. Right. And there's Nick. So, and Nolte, by the way, right before this film, had been in Down and Out in Beverly Hills. So he really went to the gym. He really uh, <laughs> cleaned himself up and trimmed down and uh, 
physically, I think this is the best he's ever he ever looked in a movie. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. 48 hours, he looked good, but he looks better here. Yes. And he, he really, you know, he wanted to, as he said, to uh, compliment the uniform. And uh, he certainly does. But this is a real, let's establish our character right <laughs> off the bat. Yes, and establish mood when yes. that guy runs right into the camera and boom, gets that blood popping out of his face. And uh, there's old Rip. And Rip Torn was in kind of an, uh, he was working a lot, but he was, you know, sometimes he was in something like Beastmaster. Mm -hmm. Other times he was doing a lot of comedies like Canadian Bacon and Beer and right. things like that during this period. And But then also would do uh, some superb work for television in like the Atlanta Child Murders. Uh, he did a wonderful uh, version of Long Hot Summer. And this is all before he kind of had his, I mean, again, he was a constant. City Heat with Eastwood and Burt Reynolds and different projects. Uh, he never stopped, but then became, if you will, this cult figure because of his brilliant, brilliant work on The Larry Sanders Show, which, of course, was sometime in uh, the future right. when he was doing this movie. But um, what, a, what a fine actor, and whether he was playing... Uh, leads in really solid films or strange little supporting roles and things that were really so beneath him. Uh, he just brought so much. What, what, a, what a terrific And actor. he is a native Texan, so this is where he felt uh, he was right at, uh, right at home. And we're coming up to an interesting moment here that uh, Nick is arriving home and he is uh, definitely questioning himself and what he's up to uh, in his job. Look how wonderfully empty that looks. That, that is a cop's home that, uh, where his life is his job. Yes. And Oh, but there's something else there. <laughs> yes, there is. Now, from this moment, uh, Nolte looks in his bedroom. He sees his lady, and he is now going to move into the bathroom. And for me, this is an absolute 100% direct reference to Bullet, because this is the end of Bullet. And of course, Harry Kleiner, who has the final writing position on this movie, wrote the shooting script of Bullet, and Walter Hill was the second assistant director. And Kleiner also uh, worked with uh, Walter on a Red Heat. And I think a lot of the, if you will, classic tropes, and you and I have discussed, uh, that exist in this film with the love triangle and Maria Conchita Alonso and almost the, the film noir elements come from Kleiner. He was the veteran screenwriter uh, on this film, career going back to the 40s, wonderful film noir like uh, Fallen Angel and Where the Sidewalk Ends. And, of course, he also wrote a Sam Fuller movie. He wrote House of Bamboo. Right. And, uh, of course, my personal favorite, Fantastic Voyage, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> beyond uh, Bullet. But uh, Kleiner was the real deal. And I, I think it's wonderful that... Uh, 
that Hill, uh, what he, what Walter Hill said impressed him about Kleiner, and it points to the production of this movie, uh, was that during the making of Bullet, Kleiner had to write ahead of the camera a lot of the time. And he had that skill, uh, which is an immeasurable one. And so when they were making this movie, Walter Hill knew, I'm going to have to have somebody I can trust who's good to, uh, you know, as we make it, uh, be there to, uh, you know. Do the next scene based on what we did today. Do the next scene and pull up the slack, you bet. And uh, he couldn't have found a, uh, a better choice. And here's Powers Booth with the Scorpions. What an introduction. Gee, I wonder what kind of a guy Powers Booth is. And, uh, and th this is um, uh, so completely different performance and character than he uh, had in uh, Southern Comfort, which was his previous film with Walter. Right. Which is why it's so smart to set him up as, as a guy who would... Uh, pick up and, and, and crush a scorpion that, uh, so that we get a hint that, no, this is not the Powers Booth that you saw last or have ever seen before. Right. Of course, he, he uh, really established his career overnight playing Jim Jones because uh, he'd mostly been a theater actor until he uh, got his Emmy for that TV movie. Well, for the Jim Jones uh, film, uh, of course, too, uh, he got a little, people got a little upset with him because there was a strike going on, remember? Mm -hmm. And he, and SAG would not uh, appear, no SAG members were to appear on television or anything else during the time until the contract was settled. And Powers Booth attended the Emmy Awards ceremony and accepted his award. That's and right. people thought that was a slap in the face to SAG. And uh, it, it was not. It, uh, and I, I thought it showed uh, actually a lot of guts. And, of course, the contract was settled, and uh, he, he honored uh, SAG completely. But um, he actually got some attention. John Dennis Johnson as uh, the mousy uh, <laughs> accountant yes. for uh, our good friend Powers Booth. And, it's, uh, it's good to have a weak, corrupt banker when you need one. Yes. Now, this moment here, uh, where it is essentially uh, eliminating some of uh, Powers Booth's uh, competition for the uh, drug market here in this uh, town, is still, to me, a little unclear. It's, yeah, it's really sort of like something that comes out of a, uh, a montage uh, rather than a scene. It's like... Here we're establishing we're clever uh, and violent, kind of like a 1930s gangster movie where you'd have a, a series of a bunch of places being shot up and Molotov cocktails being thrown into banks. And well, stuff. this has an odd cut in it, and we'll see it here in a, in a few seconds. And here with uh, our government uh, operatives, of course, are observing everything. They're observing Nick Nolte. We still don't know what they're up to. And... Obviously, it's uh, something pretty sinister because they're already talking about killing Texas Rangers. But now that we're back to the chicken shack and we see this character coming in, uh, a character we don't know. And this is uh, just, and there we go. 
And now, yeah, we cut to Nolte. Um, yeah, it, it does feel like there is uh, material missing between the two scenes. Mm -hmm. and it's very it, abrupt. Uh, very abrupt. And in fact, uh, as we know, there is. There was a lot of stuff shot uh, for this film that was not used. And it was, it was a long, grueling process, not only uh, boiling down the John Milius script, but uh, including eliminating a storyline that, we'll, that we will go into where the footage actually was shot with uh, Andy Robinson as one of the uh, feds. So I think that, that at times the abruptness, now there I think it's very noticeable. Other times I don't believe it is noticeable at all. Right. Uh, now this moment, this is the, you know, let's, have our uh, great, uh, you know, mano a mano between our uh, our baddie and our hero. And, of course, the good guy wears black and the bad guy wears white. Yep. And uh, so, uh, but I think um, the, if you will, the classic tropes of the Western are so much here. And uh, it's true throughout the whole movie. There is Tom Tiny Lister wearing the uh, 93 on his shirt. And he was quite an interesting guy. I wrote a movie, uh, wrote two movies actually that he was in. And uh, I remember during a rehearsal period, I was sitting next to him. We were actually on the floor because there weren't enough chairs. And Tom leaned his head back and hit the back of his head against the corner of a desk that had one of those glass tops on it. Ooh. And there was blood. And I went, oh, my God, are you okay, man? He reached behind and just looked at the blood and said, yeah, I'm okay. He didn't even feel it. It was like a bowling ball wow. for a skull. It was remarkable. But he was uh, he was a nice guy and was uh, was very good. And, in fact, the that movie, that was uh, the film, if anybody remembers, Prison, uh, directed by Rennie Harlan. And before we left for Wyoming to make the movie... Rennie and I went to the movies, and this was the film that we saw. Oh, cool. And, and not even knowing that Tom Lister was going to be in our film. That's great. Now, do you think this is shot around El Paso, uh, where the story is set, or uh, is this Southern California? Because I know they shot in both locales. I, I don't have a sense of I think of a lot of uh, this material... Uh, and throughout, and of course, the inner city, the city stuff around the banks and all of that. I think it was all El Paso. Uh, and of course, Walter's own uh, experiences of uh, shooting in Texas. And we see definite echoes of it mm -hmm. comes from writing The Getaway for Peckinpah right. and being on set. And uh, that's, uh, and, and I think that that movie also of course influenced this film but so of course does the wild bunch and a number of other things when frequently actors powers booth and michael ironside william forsyth all referred to this as walter hill's tribute to sam peckinpah so and i think it's it's absolutely there oh yes uh, bill forsyth made uh, some real declarations about that in a very good interview where he says and i quote Extreme Prejudice is the last of the Mohicans. I don't think we'll ever see a film made like that again. 
It's Walter Hill's homage to Sam Peckinpah, and it's just a gathering of some really amazing actors, heavyweights, just to make a piece like that, something that just had this feeling of something long gone by. And I think a lot of what uh, Forsyth is referring to is the fact that uh, this was a commitment from top Hollywood people to make this style of an action movie. It's not Fast and Furious. It's not, uh, you know, if you will, something. And certainly this is long before CGI invaded everybody's life. Oh, yes. But uh, this in itself is a throwback. Yes, it's a, a real physical uh, man-against-man action picture. Which began to really kind of fizzle out. Oh, yeah. It did. Uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right about it, it being, you know, in homage to Peck and Pie. Uh, Walter Hill has said to me that the people that he, he really credits uh, for his, his career as a director was uh, Sam Peckinpah and the kindness of Charles Bronson. Because he said that, well, actually, I can give you the quote. He says, I'll be eternally grateful to Charles E. Bronson uh, his agreeing to do the movie, which was hard times. Uh, I think in the end, there were two things that really kind of got me there. One was I wrote The Getaway, which Peckinpah directed and was a big hit. That got me the chance to direct. And when I did Hard Times, Charlie did the piece, which certainly helped make the movie a success. Then I was unleashed. Well, that was a thing that uh, uh, Charlie's support was so important to Hill. Oh, and there's Lynn Shea. Long before her horror rebirth, which he has enjoyed now. And she is a wonderful lady and just such a great character actress. But... Um, I think it's interesting to note with Hill that in these days, in these studio days, the support of a movie star made a hell of a lot of difference. Yes. That's, who knows where that is anymore because everything is kind of so shrouded and foggy and, you know, there are no clear-cut lines. But in those days, if you had someone like Charles Bronson supporting you, you got your opportunity. And there, uh, we should note, uh, is dialogue that absolutely you would never hear in a movie made these days. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it uh, absolutely would not happen. Now, here in the, uh, as the story unfolds, and we begin to see a little bit more of what in the world our government operatives are up to. And we know now that, uh, of course, we know these guys are compatriots because we saw them at the airport. But now that when they did their, their scene together, that reminded one a bit of forty-eight hours. Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, of course, with Walter, too, we're the ups and the downs were extreme. That there could be a massive hit like the Warriors. It would be a massive hit like 48 Hours. And then in between, uh, a movie like uh, that I personally uh, love but uh, did not do well, like Streets of Fire. Right. And that was always kind of uh, Hill's pattern. As you know, Walter's very frank about it, that there would be some things that would just hit and others that would not. 
And for Carolco, uh, who Andy Vanya, Mario Kassar financed this film, uh, he did three, uh, Red Heat, this, and Johnny Handsome. And unfortunately, although now all three movies have uh, very substantial and legitimate cult followings oh, for, yes. you know, their qualities, uh, at the time of their release, they were not world shakers. You know, his films always seem so uh, personal that I, I think it's sometimes it's a question of what is personal and important to him in a given situation. If the rest of us respond to it, or I should say if the public responds to it, then it's a hit. If, it, if not, um, it doesn't do much business. Well, Walter's also always been a uh, stylist. Yes. And some people are completely comfortable with the style. Uh, others are not. And um, here showing this history of Cash Bailey, uh, as you said, the difference here in the script uh, that Milius wrote and uh, Derek Washburn and Larry Gross and Harry Kleiner and all, all these other wonderful screenwriters who distilled it down that, uh, in fact, uh, the Cash Bailey character does not even appear in the script for the first 35 pages. <laughs> That's right. And um, the other characters that are major in the final film don't appear at all in the screenplay. And uh, we should also note in uh, Milius's script that the government operative characters do not have names. They only are identified by the jobs that they do, such as right. light weapons. Uh, Heavy weapons, uh, demolition. Demolition, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, information gathering and, and what have you. So uh, it certainly opened up the idea of the uh, casting, but it made everything a little more impersonal, which is probably very much his point, mm -hmm. that this is just a commando unit. This is like a machine Right. That has been dropped into Texas. To do a job. To do a job. And part of the history behind what Milius originally wrote was the uh, idea of the German plan to invade the United States through Mexico. This came up uh, in World War I and World War II. And, of course, never happened. But... It was, to me, as he's like, well, there you go. There is an open doorway right there for a foreign power. And maybe we need to bring some uh, military folks in to take over a stronghold like a fortress. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be our best line of defense. And, um, and, some, and also in the Milius draft, uh, some of the uh, CIA operatives, the uh, government operatives, uh, parachute in in a sequence that's very reminiscent of Red Dawn. Yes. You know, one of the interesting things, as long as we're talking about uh, all the writers involved, co-credited with the story is Fred Rexer, uh, which I find very interesting because, well, he has so few credits and only this one for writing. But uh, And all his credits were with John Milius on films. He was an Army Vietnam combat veteran and uh, military advisor in Apocalypse Now, spiritual advisor on Conan the Barbarian, and technical advisor on Red Dawn. 
So he was part of John's inner circle. Right. And a military expert, clearly. Yes. Now, going against the grain with, with Bullet, we see here this conflict. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. He gets upset. Uh, if we remember in Bullet, when Jackie Bissett presses Steve McQueen, he has one line of dialogue. It's not for you, baby. <laughs> and that's it. And uh, Nick wanted to go for something uh, a little more histrionic. But it's one of the few bursts of emotion, actually, we see the character have in this movie. And I, I wonder now, looking at it so, uh, so frequently as we prepared for this, Nolte's being so stoic and so lacking in humor or shown humor here, uh, you, you wonder, yeah, why is she with him? Yeah, it's it's frankly a little unclear the the appeal. It's certainly not personal warmth. No, it is not. And as you and I had discussed, uh, to see extreme prejudice, and then we jump forward to fire in the hole. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was, of course, the the dynamics are traditional dynamics and westerns and film noir and things like that. So. We're not looking at uh, anybody appropriate anything. However, uh, I don't think we can escape the comparison with this with Justified. Absolutely. Uh, there, because there you have a ranger. Of course, he's in Kentucky, Raylan Givens, mm -hmm. and uh, a girl between him and Boyd Crowder, who is a drug lord. And they used to dig coal together. And in this case, it's Jack and Cash. And they were good buddies. So, you know, in a way, you could take that back the uh, farther to Angels with Dirty Faces. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it is a classic kind of a gangster and cop, or uh, gangster and priest. Well, well, yeah, one goes one way, and the other goes the other, and right. that's right. And uh, of course, Harold Robbins wrote uh, Stone for Danny Fisher, and that was the basis. That was the story right there that then became uh, King Creole. With Elvis, but uh, it was—it's something that just always has uh, has worked. And uh, uh, I, you you uh, had mentioned the fact that uh, there isn't uh, a great deal of humor in this film, and I—I uh, th I think that is is notable, especially for um, this kind of very masculine uh, action picture. It is a little unusual that. Um, the chuckles you get were in the airport when people were coming in and horsing around. But particularly, uh, it's interesting, after 48 hours, mm -hmm. which it just so skillfully has the humor and the action and the, the drama. It just, absolutely. It, it's just wonderful. And, it, and Nolte absolutely can find that uh, comedy rhythm. And again, what he had done right before this, down and out in Beverly Hills. So right. he was a very comfortable guy uh, approaching it from, from that standpoint. But he did spend time with uh, Texas Rangers. And he, this is how he wanted to find uh, the core of this character. Now, this scene is shot almost, to me, verbatim of the way John Milius described it in his very original mm -hmm. draft. 
Yeah, as you say, there are shot descriptions in this. And yeah, you can you can see it shot for shot. And this is quite a uh, wonderful uh, uh, shootout. And the amount of choreography here is really impressive uh, because there's a great deal going on. And uh, we're... Absolutely, you know, on the on the front lines here, and as with Amelia's script, the government operatives are watching this at a distance because this is the test for the Nick Nolte character. They want to know who they're going up against, and is this guy a real badass or not? And of course, he is. Yes, he is. They should have seen the earlier part of the film. Yes, they could have saved all that uh, ammo. Exactly. And uh, but uh, this this is a uh, beautifully done uh, scene. But it is interesting that it is from uh, that very first John Milius draft. Uh, it is absolutely it, it it's like every comma and period. Oh yes, they they preserved it exactly. It's preserved it's exactly. Yeah. That's that's the perfect word for it too. And. Here we go, and things and, right there. Ooh. And uh, one thing's start, uh, as you say, the choreography is beautiful. You never look at a moment and say, wait, who was that, or where did that shot go? When you look at how so much of action is shot today, where they do a lot of shaky camera and a lot of purposely too close uh, to quite get what's going on, just, I guess, to give them more options on cutting it. Well, here, of course, with Clancy Brown watching, oh, the great Mickey Jones, watching uh, with the uh, binoculars, this also echoes uh, the Wild Bunch mm -hmm. uh, because we have the scene where they're seeing Emilio Fernandez's uh, gang, the Federales, uh, in their shootout uh, scene at a distance. Right. And even uh, some moments uh, from the very beginning in the... Uh, in the town shootout, uh, Bo Hopkins, they're blowing this town all to hell. <laughs> and uh, so you, you, and it allows us, if you will, that, that distance to actually see kind of the layout of where everybody is in relation to everybody else. Right. So it's also a very good directorial choice. There's Mickey Jones, a very, very nice guy uh, who was... Uh, the drummer for Kenny Rogers in the first edition. And Whoa. I love that, just that window going which in. Which I'm sure was a mistake. Now, right. Tommy Rosales, also an extremely nice fellow. I had him in a movie playing a guy who robs a liquor store. And he was shooting a shotgun and uh, a tremendous uh, stunt performer and a good actor and a very, very nice guy. And as you say, a stunt performer and an actor, and that is so valuable when you get guys that can really do the action as well as act, and so you don't have to suddenly go to a long shot because exactly. you can't use them. Exactly. And uh, Tommy's one of the old pros and uh, still very much around. That had to hurt. And as Walter said himself, that there's really no way to shoot scenes like this uh, where the audience has not seen this a hundred times before. 
And he said that it's not just the choreography, but are they invested in the characters? Well, here, of course, you've seen uh, Rip Torn, who we like. Right. Bite the dust. Uh, that's a beautiful image. And we've seen Nolte taking uh, everybody on and winning. And so that that is the impact of the scene. It's not just more bullet hits and cars squealing around corners and things like that, although there's plenty of that stuff. Uh, it is very much, uh, you know, what the characters are doing and how they're doing it. And this is such a fun sequence. Yes. When the uh, uh, escaping bad guys come up against the agents. The worst guys. Yes. That's we're supposed it. to be the good guys. Mm-hmm. Right, we don't know what they are still. And uh, we just know that they're up to something. And there's... And you have two actors with incredibly resonant voices. Mm -hmm. And uh, Clancy Brown, of course, uh, has done so much work in animation. Oh, my gosh. And yes. Including uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, that's right. Yes, many, many times. And every Marvel animated show and every DC animated show, he has uh, contributed his vocal talents and... Uh, it's so interesting, going back to the Milia script, that in that scene, when the truck pulls up and the bad guys get out, they cut away. Yes. And you don't even get to, you don't know for sure what happened. Until later, of course. Yes. I think that keeping, uh, keeping the action, putting the action in there, rather, was a good choice. Well, again, with, with Walter is so skilled uh, as an editor and paring things down and trying to really uh, make the scenes work and shave it as close as possible. That's one of his uh, tremendous skills. And with this particular movie, uh, for anyone who's never held <laughs> any of the drafts of the script uh, in their hands, it is a beast. Uh, the Amelia script is what, 146 pages? 148. 148, yeah. It is a r real hefty load. And so Hill and Derek Washburn and uh, of course uh, Harry Kleiner had to find the core to each scene, retaining what John Milius had done, retaining mm -hmm. this fantastic concept of what happens if a group of government operatives, you know, run headlong into a Texas Ranger who they underestimate. Right. And um, you've got this situation where 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 do you find that, that those scenes and the best scenes and the best way to present them? And I think uh, Walter did a, a tremendous job of that because that is not easy. And... Of course, this film uh, there was a had a very long schedule, and one of the subplots that was cut. And here we see uh, the partner in crime is this material with Michael Ironside. He has a partner played by Andrew Robinson. Um, Dirty Harry and Star Trek and Hellraiser fame. 
And of course, Andy, Andy is just one of the great people. And he was on this film uh, for many weeks. And all of his scenes were with Ironside. And it was a whole nother le level to the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And they were, he was another government agent. And he'll just decide, in fact, he told Mike Ironside, uh, you know what, we've just got to cut all the Andy Robinson material. And they'd shot on that for weeks. Gosh, it's got to be a huge disappointment. But, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure Ironside makes a reference to his partner. He does. Uh, but not having seen the footage, you don't miss it. No. I think it was a good cut and one that had to be made. It's funny when you talk about how long the script is, 148 pages. If you presented a producer with a 148-page script today, how much would they say you have to cut? Uh, 50. Mm-hmm. They really don't like over 100 now. No. Also, this element of having Maria Cachito Alonso work uh, in a nightclub, to me, also is a great throwbacks. This is like Dark Angel. Uh, oh, it's you all know, the film noir stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Idol Lupino and Private Hell 36 and The Man I Love and films like that. And that that's Harry Kleiner. Right. That's the, the classic thing. Having it be a mariachi singer is different. But, yes. But it's, it's, you know, a matter of degrees. Absolutely. I, I think Ironside is particularly great in these scenes because he kind of puts on his nerd suit. Oh, yes. It's nebbish time. Put on the glasses yes. that, <laughs> that you can see through, not the dark ones. And yep. The little tie and shirt. And he is just uh, sucking Nolte in. And uh, Nick isn't, uh, you know, is unaware, but uh, as everyone is, but Ironside's plan is uh, unfolding uh, very, very well. And th this scene is so well shot. I think just the movie uh, itself, a beautiful job by Matt Leonetti. And, you know, it's interesting because he kind of became a bit of a comedy specialist, kind of modern-day things. Like, of course, he did a beautiful job on Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yes. And then with uh, with Walter, uh, Red Heat, and Johnny Handsome, this. And after this, uh, another 48 hours. But one of my favorite jobs he ever did, because, again, it's it's different, and it's so glossy and so... Gosh, just has that wonderful, almost Douglas Cirque look to it. Is uh, the photography job he did on Jagged Edge? Oh yes, lovely and well. He uh, adapted so beautifully to whatever uh, was called upon for, and, and you know, a beautiful sense of the tone he needs. Oh, I, I just love the atmosphere in here, where he's got enough smoke to make it make sense, but but never obscures what you need to see. Oh, where, uh, yeah, it looks like it's a night in London uh, where, <laughs> where you can't, a pea super and you can't see anyone. But that's the mark of uh, one of the great old-style directors of photography because they take what the, uh, if you will, off the page mm -hmm. and they study this script and then get with the director. And, of course, uh, Walter and Matt had to uh, have a wonderful uh, simpatico, and they came up with a uh, 
a great color palette for this film, uh, particularly when we get back uh, into the parched desert oh. and uh, and matching the scenes that were shot in California with the scenes that were shot in Texas. Right. You never have any sense that there are those two locales. No. And the uh, moments here with with her again, we I wish we were we were we don't know how hard this is punching uh, Nick Nolte in the heart, but uh, it definitely is. And old Forsyth, of course, is the most offensive of the group and in that sense reminds me of the dirty dozen he's uh he's the maggot he's the telly savalas of uh yeah. of the this crew greats on everybody yeah. yes and uh but we're still being held back information oh yes we know they're interested in a bank we know that this is you know somehow the government is actually doing something but we're just unclear as to what is the motivation here what in the world are these guys actually about which uh really i think is the if you will the the key to the milia script and what he was always interested in was ghost operations mm -hmm. and he brought that uh, to the fore many times and this is one of the few films uh, considering all the action movies and wonderful films that Walter Hill has made, uh, this is one of the very few films that even has a hint of espionage to it. That's a very interesting point, yes. Because even something like Red Heat, where you'd think there would be Russian spies all over the place, nope, it's, it's just Arnold uh, after his fugitive. That's right, it's very direct. Yes. And this moment... Uh, Walter, of course, was a very good friend of John Flynn's, the director. And uh, this scene uh, and the way this is shot, actually, it reminds me of uh, something from John's uh, wonderful movie, Rolling Thunder. Mm -hmm. And going up and, and we don't know what uh, Cash is up to. And uh, Love the laundry hanging out. Yes. Man. That's, that's and, such a nice touch. And the colors. And he's going in, and we have no idea who he is going to see. Now, this moment, uh, again, we, we just find these because filmmakers go back to their favorite themes. They go back to their favorite visuals. And, uh, you know, here we go. This is, uh, this is the getaway. That's right. <laughs> and this is... Uh, there's a, yes. An endearing moment. Yes, yes, indeed. And if you want rats, I can tell you where you can find rats. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, actually, this this is the scene for whatever. Where I think uh, you know, Bill Forsyth's uh, uh, voice modulates uh, the best uh, mm -hmm. for some reason. He they finally really uh, struck the right chord. And, and of course, there's Mr. Scott, uh, uh, very well remembered in Revenge of the Nerds. Right. And quite Jamal. a different, yeah. yes, quite a different performance. <laughs> quite. <laughs> then here. Of course, Powers Booth, 
died much too young. Oh, yes. But uh, also was uh, very much a part of Deadwood. Uh, and Walter Hill directed the pilot. Indeed he did. Um, and, of course, Tombstone. Right. I was thinking the two roles that I always think of him in is as Curly Bill Brosius and, uh, from Tombstone and uh, his uh, Cy Tolliver in Deadwood. And yeah, he, was, he was wonderful. And I, this is such a cute touch. That's that's great, and uh, here's our little bit of yes, uh, comedy relief from the dim-witted deputy, Mr. Ernest. Yes, <laughs> and uh, what are we looking for here? And again, this this goes straight back to to Milius and they, Derek Washburn and everybody else who was uh, rewriting the script was not going to change anything that John had written about ammunition or <laughs> tracking down ammunition or uh, markings on shell casings or anything like that because uh, that is definitely Milius territory. That's right. You don't want to make the mistake of fixing that. No, absolutely not. And I like, I'll tell you why I particularly like this scene because it is the one scene in the movie where we see the Nolte character actually doing police work. Yes, not just going around and pushing people around or shooting, but doing the nuts and bolts kind of work. Yep, and I think it's uh, I think it's very good. And here we have, of course, Michael Ironside has his own thing going on. We can imagine that right before he walks into the office, there was a scene with him and Andy Robinson mm -hmm. saying, okay, how, what are we going to feed this Texas Ranger uh, to throw him off the track? And so he, and he does. And he's trying so hard to be helpful. Yes, exactly. But of course, we... Do not know. And there it is. He's a nice fellow. And here with these uh, planning scenes uh, of what is going to happen with the uh, planned robbery and all the rest of it, again, this goes straight to the getaway. And in fact, in another parallel to Justified, in the pilot to Justified, they make reference to that. That... Uh, what we're, any bank robber who goes ahead and sets off uh, explosive charges or whatever to deflect attention away mm -hmm. from the robbery and get the cops occupied, that is directly referenced in the pilot. And in fact, Oliphant's name is, uh, line rather, is uh, I saw that in a Steve McQueen movie. <laughs> so the impact of the influence is consistent. Yes, and uh, cannot be denied. Cannot be denied. And here is, uh, we go with a, kind of a, a similar situation, but of course in the in the Peckinpah film, it is uh, multiple uh, explosions around town and uh, kind of trying to get, uh, and they've laid out where all the police are at, at different times and all of that. Uh, and this is... Uh, all of that planning. Yes. Uh, makes it all seem smart. Yes. And here with the uh, 
with the hydrogen truck, of course, we get ready to do a wonderful kaboom. <laughs> and, uh, but also one of the differences being that um, here where they set off all of these diversions uh, and these explosions versus the getaway where everything is in town. That's right. They keep it local there. Yeah. Here it's all spread out. Spread out. Right. Also because it is bigger. It's. Uh, let's get the hell out of there because here we go. Yes. And we're seeing some really, really fine work by Freeman Davies who is Walter's longtime film editor. And the integration of shots and all of this action back and forth and keeping track of all of these characters, that is very difficult to do. And I think it's beautifully handled here. Positively. And as, as you say, it is when it's done well, you don't see it. No, it's invisible, as it should be. Because, it, it, you know, you don't want to uh, interrupt the narrative flow. Yeah, if you're seeing a movie and you're thinking, wow, this is great cutting, you're not really into <laughs> you're the movie. You're not into the movie, exactly. And, uh, the second or third time you're watching it, that's great. But, yeah, when you want to see how you can do it yourself. Well, Walter, just like whether it was John Ford or Raoul Walsh or Sam Peckinpah, uh, it, it really doesn't matter, but great directors... Ten, Clint Eastwood, tend to uh, gather around them a team. Yes. And Freeman Davies, just like May Woods and uh, Matt Leonetti and others were part of Walter Hill's team. And uh, everyone really stepped up uh, for this movie. It's true. It's, it's funny. People always talk about great directors and their stock company of actors. And that's absolutely true. And it's something that you can just with the eye pick out uh, you know, you're watching your John Ford movies and say, oh, there's Wallace Ford again. But it's really what makes so much of these things work is the behind-the-scenes people and the people that know what the director wants. And it's, it's intuitive. Oh, and, and now I think Eastwood is probably the greatest example of that. Yes. Going back decades with, uh, with some of his people. And, uh, and you're right, because that is... As you say, that is something that is so important. Uh, and this film had some, you know, they, they had some budget issues and they had some uh, scheduling issues. And you needed the right people to be on hand to handle it. Now, I think this is this is a great touch because this is so... Perfect, because sometimes that's what happens. You're pulling off a crime or whatever, and the most mundane thing completely upends the entire plan. Right. And this is, uh, and again, going to the getaway. But uh, here they are, uh, armored car guys, and not just walking in in their long coats <laughs> with their... Shotguns. But Matt Mulhern and Bill Forsyth are having a real problem here trying to get uh, 
out of the sand and they're not being there is going to end up being a real problem. Here we go. And this just the movement in this is yes, lovely. It's it's great. And here we're now thinking, okay, so these government operatives are actually after Powers Booth. Right. So, yes, they are going to rip off this bank, but what they're doing is they're stealing Powers Booth's money. Right. And, and whatever else he and has Whatever in else, there. exactly. Right. But that, that's the thing. This is the way to break him. And that seems to be very much the mission and what everybody is about. And all the stealing of the money is just cover. Yes, it is. And because what they really want are right there, are the record books from John Dennis Johnson and the man who knows where all the cash is. And now they're <laughs> They're still trying to get they're out of that trench. They're still trying to, their they're Texas here. license plate, they're still trying to get out of here. And Forsyth had done also around this time uh, Out for Justice, the Steven Seagal movie with John Flynn. Now, he's a real just out of control maniac in that movie. But uh, one of his early on performances that I was just fascinated by was as uh, Cockeye in Once Upon a Time in America. Oh. He was so sinister mm -hmm. and just like, oh, my gosh, who is that guy? He really stood out. And then years later, uh, just wonderful as the butcher in uh, Boardwalk Empire. Yes. He, he was great. Oh, John Dennis Johnson. Great fellow. And... Uh, could always play these kind of bespectacled, you know, he's either playing a, a motorcycle hood or somebody wore incredibly thick lenses and uh, was... And was a Jerry Lewis. Yes, exactly. Uh, Lady. He, yep, as he was doing his uh, uh, accounting for the mob or whatever he was doing. And... <laughs> there, there we go. Yeah, this is yes, uh, early morning call on extreme prejudice. Uh, yes. That could uh, definitely, as uh, as Walter is quoted, is that uh, at times, as he said, the creative tension was high, <laughs> and uh, that seemed to be between uh, Mr. Nolte and Mr. Booth. Yes, and uh, but th this is such a. Uh, well-executed scene. And the beauty of this type of filmmaking that we're seeing here is you actually see, understand, not only the geographical position of everybody within the sequence, which is very difficult, especially considering how many people there are, but it is all clear and it is clean. 
And these are skills that kind of seem to have gone by the wayside a little bit. It's true. It's uh, people's... Well, I think a lot of it may just come down to shooting schedules that people don't really have the chance sometimes to get all the shots they want. And they go cheap and fast with a lot of shaky camera. Yes. And a lot of running and figure, well... Painting from this one to that one and back and forth, yes. And you, you can get the general information uh, across, but when you have a thing with this many characters and you, for to, to understand what is truly going on, you need to know who is where and what bullet went where and what missed. Right. Uh, and those things you lose. This is so clean. And now Nick is giving chase. And ours, so this is just a nice, it's a short sequence, but it's a very nice one. And uh, anyone who really wants to see the ABCs, again, Walter being schooled uh, on the making of Bullet, but the ABCs of how to shoot a car chase, you would go a long way to find anything better than the work he did in The Driver. Yes. And uh, once again, you have to really know your film language to make uh, scenes like this work. I always tell uh, people that uh, I know that are starting out uh, making films uh, to watch these kind of things with the sound off. Yes. And that's where you, you pick up where the cuts are and why they happen where they do. And same old same. And now things really start to uh, unravel uh, as Nick yeah. uh, does, does a little his, investigating. It, right, as Nick does his job. Yes. And... This moment, again, in the Milius script, as we said, that the, the pace and the way it's laid out and everything else, quite a bit different, is very far and deep into that draft. Right. This is way late in it. Yes, it is. And, uh, and we kind of violate a little basic rule here, but it works to heighten the tension where we know more than Nick Nolte knows. Yes. And so we're not discovering it as he does. We saw this in the very first frames of the movie. Well, but that, that is the basis of suspense, is when audience knows more or different things than the characters. That's so right. So they have the, oh, my God, don't open that door, because we know what's behind it. That's it. And now we're going to... You know, suddenly everything's going to start coming apart. I love this. He just kind of shouts it across the room. <laughs> oh, the FBI wants this. The FBI wants that. And you tell him to kiss my ass. And there, yes, sir. Now tell us what you really think. I really like Matt Mulhern in... in in this uh, performance. He was a good actor, and he is, if you will, kind of the the everyman of the commando squad. He's not 
you know, crazy like Bill Forsyth, and he, you know, he doesn't have all these uh, idiosyncrasies. He's just regular guy. Regular guy. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's a real nice uh, contrast. And also here, Forsyth, I think in these particular scenes, where he is, he takes it down a few notches mm -hmm. as if all of the uh, cigar chomping and everything else was also kind of part of the blind. And I, I, I think that's an interesting thought. Right, that it's an act. It is an act, and yes. And that these guys, when you see them now, they're so much more calm because they're not at an airport and they're not, there's not an audience they're performing for. They're just really trying to deal with their jobs now. And here, of course, Scott, uh, Larry Scott lays it out as to what in the world are we doing? Why are we doing this? And uh, he is actually asking finally the questions that the audience itself would like answered. And Clancy Brown's response is, we do not have the right to know those answers. That's right. That he's a soldier and... He's doing this kind of work. You do what you're told and you don't ask why. Among and, other things, because the good thing about not knowing is you can't tell anyone. Uh, you can't be forced to give up something you don't have. That's right. And, um, and uh, here, of course, too, somewhere along the line, that uh, the name was changed uh, to the zombie squad from originally in the media's draft was it Operation Columbus. That's right. That is quite a switch, isn't that it? That is quite a switch. And the fact that they are all listed as dead so that if they get captured or uh, killed or whatever, there's absolutely no way to trace their involvement with uh, crime or with the U.S. military. Again, the uh, the ghost patrol, and uh, now they find we discover. Okay, now Nick knows they did. They got in that fight on purpose to, uh, you know, find things out about him. Right. And uh, of course, Forsyth is having none of it, and neither is Matt Mulhern. They are sticking to their directives. And uh, you see so much again. I think of of echoes of uh, of apocalypse. Mm -hmm. As I think of the wonderful scene on the boat uh, when they're going up river, and uh, what's that great line? Uh, I don't know what you're up to, but one look at you, and I know it's going to be hot. <laughs> and that's it. It's. Uh, uh, everybody is just following orders. And in this sense, of course, that phrase, of course, suggests German army. Mm -hmm. But, um, of course, here they uh, are American uh, soldiers and they, you know, have what has all always been a safe assumption that whatever orders they're following, there's good reason behind it. Right. They're doing the right thing. By following orders. And in fact, uh, as we discover, uh, maybe there's something else going on uh, and not right. just that. This little clip reminds me of a movie that Walter would make uh, a few years later that I, I like quite well, uh, Undisputed.
Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought that was uh, one of the last things that uh, Peter Falk ever did. That's right. With Wesley Snipes. It's a very good movie. Speaking of uh, movie clips, you remember in the, the Milius script, I thought it was sort of interesting that uh, so much action takes place at a, uh, a drive-in where they're showing Dirty Harry and Magnum Force. Yes. And, uh, yeah, John's kind of uh, nod to himself. That's right. <laughs> a self-homage. Yes. And, of course, speaking of Magnum Force... One of the writers, again, Derek Washburn, mm-hmm. here had collaborated with Michael Cimino on the screenplay for Silent Running. Right. And uh, with Stephen Bochco also making a, uh, doing a pass on that script. And uh, here is Ironside coming clean. Now, I think here, this sequence... This, Henry, this really is, it's like boiling everything down right. just completely. But, okay, now let's, you and I should team up. We both want the same thing. We want Powers Booth. We're on the same side. We're on the let's same side. So combine what we know. God knows how many pages that was originally and then right, bring it right down to its essence. Which I would encourage anyone, if they've never read any of Walter Hill's uh, scripts, and you can find them online, to read uh, his screenplay to Hard Times, which is just a remarkable document. And as I said, it really is that uh, incredible haiku style that he really (laughs) kind of invented with all of that white space. And it's so... It's such a fast read, but what words are there are the necessary words that get the feeling and the scenes across. Just bare bone. Bare bones. And here, uh, and we keep going back to it, that they were working from an incredibly dense document. They seem to run almost counter to what uh, Walter's style. Now, also, of course, Henry... uh, you and I had done the commentary on Geronimo. Right. Which was another collaboration between Walter and John Milius. And uh, only, actually, their second after this. And But I've got to think that um, if they never officially were credited with, credited with anything together before, they ran in the same circles. I'm sure they knew them oh, each other for years. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that's, I think that kind of goes without saying. And, and they, uh, uh, but, but it uh, also, I think at this time, the fact that uh, Mero Kassar and Andy Vanya went ahead and decided to finance this movie, everyone has to remember where Carolco was at this point. They were making huge money. But look at the films that they were making giant money with. They were making giant money with First Blood. They were making giant money with the Rambo sequel. They were making giant money with the Terminator sequels. Now, this did not stop them from going bankrupt, <laughs> which is a whole other story unto itself. But uh, this type of movie, if you will, kind of became the house specialty. Right. And when they did well, they did fabulously well. It didn't save them, but they did. You know, Ben, seeing 
And uh, sadly, this, this was a film that didn't do particularly well, but you understand why they got behind it. Because, yes, it, it, my gosh, all of these incredible elements put together, of course, spell success. Oh, yeah. It's, it looks like a how can you lose. Absolutely. And now here we're going. Now, Matt Mulhern, of course, is still upset about uh, screwing up on the bank robbery and uh, wanting very much to redeem himself. And so we now have our our baddies and our good guy, uh, our semi-baddies, or whatever. They're still kind of a mystery, aren't they? They're, yes. Uh, joining forces. And now here we are. And that's interesting that it's a wipe. Mm-hmm. That that's a real traditional. That's a real yeah. That's really old school. It does sort of announce. And now we're moving. Yes. To something completely different. And in fact, uh, we are. We're physically moving. Because uh, yes, the uh, this town square, uh, etc., was actually built at Valuze Movie Ranch uh, in California. So we are no longer in Texas. We are certainly not in Mexico. No. But it, it is a, a lovely set. And I've been on there many times because it is used so often on Westerns. Um, I know uh, uh, most people have uh, probably seen it uh, in Westworld. Oh, they use it in Westworld all the time, there. yes. But lots and lots of, of big and especially small budget Westerns. Uh, have used the square and the church. Oh, the mission in all the oh, time. Oh, yes, yes, it's a lovely mission. And, uh, and in fact, uh, after this film wrapped, one of the first movies that was shot there uh, to defray some of the cost of, of building this was uh, uh, directed by our old friend Steve Carver, mm -hmm. uh, Bulletproof, starring Gary Busey and Bill Smith. And uh, L.Q. Jones. This moment here, again, we're getting back into even more Echoes of the Wild Bunch. Yes. Let's do it for Luther. Why not? Yeah, why not? Indeed. And this is, uh, you know, they've got their plan. And now Ironside is saying, guess what? We're going to have a new plan, and you're going to blow his head off, and then we're going to do our own thing for a great deal of money. And what is, uh, what's interesting here, I think, and again, this is uh, the great, uh, I think, reference to Peckinpah, is that this band of soldiers opt instead for uh, some loyalty. Yes. They're like, why are we screwing this guy over? Wait a minute. And uh, they're, they're defying their commander. Now that they know what the mission really is. Yes, exactly. But And, it, of course, it makes sense because they are not a gang. They've been doing uh, illegal things, but they aren't doing it because they're criminals. They're doing it because they're soldiers. And they've believed all along that there is a legitimate reason to do all of this. Yes, particularly in foreign countries when they you know, had gone up against uh, some pretty terrible uh, situations. 
and uh, you know we're operating on CIA orders and things like that. And uh, I love th th this celebration is really uh, is terrific. And Nolte just walks through this crowd, just towering over the crowd, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's it's really uh, very well done because there are a lot of folks here. It's a it's a very very large uh, number of extras. I mean, it's a couple of hundred, I think. Yes, and uh, the thing is, when all hell breaks loose, it really breaks loose. Mm -hmm. And once again, we're getting the overview. I love that. Again, we're never with Walter. You're never going to be more than two steps away from a traditional western. Mm -hmm. And of course. You know, having the, the cattle racing through there. The, the traditional westerns, uh, mm -hmm. of course, whether we were talking about the Long Riders or uh, you're talking about uh, Wild oh, Bill, Bill or, yes, or Deadwood or Geronimo. It is interesting with Deadwood, I think, um, that he only did the one pilot. That's the only episode he directed. But boy, is his imprint on that entire show. Well, of course, that's the whole great thing with a pilot with a dga is uh, you direct the pilot and you get to open up a check for every <laughs> single episode because you're officially a creator of the show so uh, that's why some of these guys always want to direct <laughs> pilots to uh, tv shows and uh, if yeah. they go they really go yeah and if they don't what have you lost but right. uh, yeah if you and another uh, traditional western that, that Walter did, which I think is a wonderful piece of work, uh, Broken Trail. Yes. Yeah. One of the one of really fine things done for television. Absolutely. For uh, AMC, as a matter of That's fact. That's right. Yeah. Terrific. I think Powers Booth is obviously having such a ball <laughs> playing this character. And he is. He's reaching for the sky. He's overdoing it. But he's doing it well and so smoothly and everything else who said. And it really is a contrast to uh, his down-at-the-heels leader of his own commando unit in Southern Comfort. Mm -hmm. Very different. Very different. And, uh, and Nolte, of course, again, is different with the shirt buttoned all the way up to his Adam's <laughs> apple. Powers booth open all the way, you know, down to the middle of his chest. Just the visual contrast oh, yes. between these two. And uh, this is the, uh, you know, we're really kind of lighting a fuse. Uh, when are these two going to finally get to it? And are they, in fact, is it their history that they're fighting over? Are they fighting over Maria Cachito Alonso? Henry, are they or are they fighting over uh, the the truth of uh, what their different jobs are? Right. It's very hard to uh, to nail it. I guess the answer really is all of the above. Yeah, because uh, as we've seen, Cash keeps offering to buy uh, Nolte's characters yeah. off, and said that you know that's not a problem. You can always afford me, but <laughs> you can't afford. The Texas Rangers star. Yes. Yep. One without the other ain't no good. So this is, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to boil down the friendship. 
But uh, Nolte is, uh, he's the unmovable force. And I think that's also something when you see the contrast between these two actors, how, look at, you see it right there. Look how free Powers Booth is with his body and how constricted Nolte is. Yes. And, you know, that was, that was Walter uh, bringing all of this uh, to uh, the performances because uh, he had said consistently that all the shoot -em ups all the bullet hits and all that, we're going to see a lot of them here in just a few moments, uh, don't mean anything if you're not invested in the people. That's right. Otherwise, it's just noise. It is. That's right. And uh, that's not what he uh, wanted to do. And, uh, you know, because, again, thinking about, like, The Getaway or uh, even a movie like Hard Times, but uh, when he was doing his, his other movies, uh, that was always, that's always been kind of uh, built in. That's right. Hasn't it? And uh, I know that when he said, when he wrote The Macintosh Man, which was to fulfill a commitment to Warner Brothers, and he saw the movie, he thought it was, it was unrecognizable. It was not, it's not a very good movie. Yeah. But to him, the big problem was, and I actually should retract my previous statement, that's a spy movie. That's right, it that, is. That is a spy right. movie, so there's his espionage, <laughs> his other espionage movie. Uh, but he said that, that what Houston and Paul Newman did, both of whom he liked, uh, just kind of drained it of any, you know, identity within the story. It was nothing. It was, you know, James Mason giving an order, and then, you know, it's just kind of that... Took all the, the personal you know, Took all the personal out, out of it, yeah. and it was just that by rote kind of uh, action movie stuff. Right. Yeah, very mechanical. And, Which is uh, sad, because you just you just know by the author how personal it is. Yes. And it, I, I always loved the rule that, well, Hitchcock always said that... Um, the, the more likable you make your villain, uh, the more interesting it becomes. And um, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking of Saboteur. Oh, yes. And just how, how stiff Bob Cummings was. Well, you know, in going on this now, this was not a likable character, but it, was, it also goes to this. One of the reasons that, uh, and of course, Andy Robinson was cut out of this, one of the reasons Dirty Harry worked so incredibly well is that Andy, in fact, was a physical match for Eastwood. This was so startling to people because Eastwood gets his butt kicked a couple of times in that movie. That's right. And you're like, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. <laughs> I mean, he's not Superman. This guy is a genuinely dangerous guy. And uh, so you've, you've got to have like one or the other. Because without that, all your hero is doing is knocking down a straw man. Right. You have to have a worthy opponent. Yes. And here's from Powers Booth and the, the, uh, uh, the early uh, sequence with the brother uh, in the cantina that when... Uh, Nick Dolte shoots him. It, it feels comes, so guilty about it. It feels guilty about it. But it does come down to that whole thing of how, in fact, did all of this happen? And it happens out of poverty. Right. And especially poverty along the border. 
poverty when there is one way to make money. Yes. Which is what, of course, pushes people into crime in most places. And I love Tom Lister just grinning, grinning like a Cheshire cat. Mm-hmm. And I love this. And, you know, I liked him. And uh, I really did. A little echo of long goodbye. Absolutely. Well, there, no, that, oh, Mark Rydell? Yes. Yes, that's somebody I love. Uh, you I don't, I don't even, even like. like. <laughs> yes. And again, it's about money. It yeah. is about money. Exactly. But the flamboyance of the Cash character uh, is so, of course, cutting, it's like glass. Uh, the edge of glass against uh, Nolte's character and his performance. Now that I think this, what is going on here? Those are very interesting choices that we're kind of seeing. These hallways, these rooms, pre chaos. Mm -hmm. Sort of establishing them. Yes, as, they're empty. Here's a nice little place. We know. Okay, now we're getting to know where everybody is once again. This beautiful sense of choreography. Of architecture, yeah. Yes, and boy, it's because it, it, it goes haywire real, real soon. And uh, here, the the scummiest character of the commandos uh, decides to be the decent guy, and uh, you know tells Nick Nolte what's up. Which I think uh, that's a that's a nice character piece, and here we see Scott with with a gun, a completely different side of his character than sitting there at a keyboard and oh, in yeah. a computer monitor. Yeah. Oh, just how sweaty he is. Yes. This is, yeah. That that was practice. This is for real. Yep. Yep. And as you say, this is a is a great moment where, uh, as you said, the creepiest guy. Yep. Laying it out. It tells Nick Nolte what's about to happen. And uh, he's actually uh, going against orders. <laughs> and there's Maria Kachi. I think she's wonderful in this scene and in this moment because after Cash, of course, shoots this guy in the head and is shocking everybody and whatever, I mean, she is. Now, terrified, he is going to kill her. Right. And, of course, he loves her. But he knows she doesn't love him. Yeah, and especially after, after that. Yeah. Right. No, she's, we haven't really said enough about how good she is in this, because she is the whole woman part of the movie, and she really... Is a is a talented actress and does a, a lovely job. No, she does, and it. But it's it's a, a difficult job. It is because she's not, if you will, a, a femme fatale. You know, she's not, you know, drawing these guys into her spider web or doing anything like that. And no, uh, it's we have to we have to believe that she is worth both of these guys being so in love with her. Yes. And and as you say, that's not about glamour. No. It's about character. 
and and also too the uh, she is the absolute point of conflict, mm -hmm. and she knows it, and she hates it. Yes. And this is interesting. Watch her how her expression changes from. What do you want to? Oh, okay. Yes. So it's nice go. little beat there. And yes, as a as a rule, uh, in in or I should say, in quite a few of uh, Walter's movies, uh, young men uh, taking uh, hookers upstairs, it generally uh, ends in gunfire. That's very true. <laughs> and that's. Uh, yeah, I don't know that necessarily one act is uh, interrelated with the other, but uh, it certainly has come. This is a really nice moment. Is she will not even put her chin on his shoulder. She is really keeping emotional distance here. And uh, obviously he wants to kiss her, and that ain't going to happen. And yeah, uh, you can see the, uh, the shield, mm -hmm. if you will, that she has up. And she does. She thinks he is absolutely insane. And, of course, not only is he, but uh, here in a few moments, he really treats her horribly. Oh, yeah. In front of everybody. Once he knows he can't have her, he treats her like garbage. Yep. Absolutely. And, oh, let me run to Nick Nolte. That'll go over well. Yeah, that doesn't go over <laughs> too good, especially since uh, Cash still has Jack's gun. And here's, uh, yes, now there's the uh, little bit of the reference uh, to the partners and uh, who we never see. And Which is funny because he, yeah, I was just going to say he does, he offers to make the split with him and the partner to say the immediate thing immediately think yeah that's his way of keeping twice as much money yep and now Clancy Brown knows what's up I, I love the way that was done pulling John Dennis Johnson to him and you just see his reaction and then when he falls back Ironside's holding the bloody knife and you see the blade And here is uh, about as old school as you can get when we're going to do the uh, the countdown. And it's uh, what in the world that uh, she's going to do. And, you know, Cash wants uh, this to be so traditional. But we're beyond tradition. This is about Coke. It's about, you know. Moving drugs across the border. It's about a private army and, you know, wiping out families and cartel violence. Uh, you know, Cash uh, is living in his own dream world, which I think is uh, ultimately his undoing. Yes, because to him, it's still this whole world of honor yeah. and stuff when he's, and to say it mild slightly, is uh, the deck stacked against Nolte. Right. Yeah, he 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 wants it to be, uh, you know, an Alexander old episode Hamilton. of Gunsmoke. He yeah. wants, yeah, Matt Matt Dillon versus, uh, you know, James Arness versus Lee Van Cleve, or Leo Gordon. 
<laughs> this is, <laughs> I love this. this is, you know, come on. You're We're doing high noon here and you're ruining it. Yeah, you're, you're screwing, gonna rip your skirt. Yeah. He's screwing around with uh, tradition. And this is not what Miss Kitty would do. And uh, would Miss Kitty, yeah, show a little? Just so everybody knows what we're fighting about. <laughs> now we're all cooking. Here we go. And uh, did see that this this scene is kind of you know it kind of protracts what's what's going on and what's going on, but with 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 excellent purpose. And you, you do kind of wonder: is it also Nolte's moral code not to plug cash right there? Right. Just well, yeah. He is. I think he really wants to bring him back to to a trial. He does not want to kill him. Yeah. The tough thing is, you know, I'd be thinking, well, I'm going to be dead no matter what happens. So why not kill him now? Right. And uh, but that's not how he does things. No. And uh, he's completely surrounded by all the guns of all the all the fellas. And here we go. But just and, as as in uh, the Wild Bunch. They do take their time. Yes, they do. And we see the interruption of what happens is a remarkable uh, nod to the Wild Bunch before we have our own version of the Battle of Bloody Porch, which is coming up right now. And here it comes. That's right. That is absolutely <laughs> from the opening. Yep. And, and, and then they look, 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 grab the guns and, and start. And start. Yep. There is so much going on here. It's so much just brilliant choreography. And it just flows. It does. Beautifully from shot to shot. And I think this sequence actually has its own identity. It isn't just an imitation of what Peck and Paw did. No. Uh, for one of the reasons is, of course, um, slow motion is sparing. That's right. And so much of what goes on here is indoors. Yes. And I think that, that gives it a, a, just a different look. And there's also, if you will, more interaction within the characters, like that scene we just had. Right, there's time for talk, even uh, if it's yes, a, very quick. Even as everybody is kind of, okay, moving through uh, this hacienda and taking care of as much business as they can take care of because they don't know who, who is the enemy anymore. Right, it's... Is it, the, is it the the private drug army? Is it their own commander? Is it... Yeah. I mean, that is, is the curious thing here, is that, uh, in a way, some plot elements are really never completely brought together. Um, there, there really are two separate things going on here. There's, you know, the, the drug war uh, against Nolte, uh, and there's what all the commandos are doing, and they more or less happen to be in the same place. Right. Well, and of course, with all the machine gun work and uh, 
Mexican soldiers and all the rest of it over and over again, whether it was Clancy Brown or Michael Ironside or Bill Forsyth. I think in this particular scene, and even Powers Booth said the same thing, that to them it was just this glorious tribute to Sam Peckinpah. Right. It's how they felt about it and why they got excited about it. Because no one had done that. You know, we, we have to remember too, you know, Henry, I mean, we, I mean, the collective we, I guess, right. <laughs> is that when this movie came out, the idea of doing anything that was an homage or looking at, say, someone like, like Sam Peckinpah's career or whatever, that was kind of a rare thing. Nobody really cared. It was, you know, that was then. Right. Hollywood had moved on. And uh, so, and this is all, this is all pre-Quentin Tarantino you know, and, you know, right. all of that stuff. So referencing other filmmakers and trying to capture the spirit of another filmmaker or, you know, honor him in any way, that was not usual unless it was, you know, say Brian De Palma. But uh, in this case, is very deliberate and... Uh, also, unlike almost anybody else who does an homage to another filmmaker, they do not have a direct connection to that filmmaker. And Walter had a direct connection to Sam Peckinpah. Yes, it, he was not just a fanboy by no, any means. Absolutely not. And of course, this this came after a time when, uh, after you know, the Peckinpah years and the Wild Bunch and so on. Uh, Violence had been uh, cut down so much. Uh, in television, you could watch all the different long-running Western series disappear in the early 70s because uh, they weren't allowed to show any violence to speak of. Everyone that got shot had to get up. Right. Uh, because of the, the fear that, um, you know, after various political assassinations, uh, starting in 68, that... Uh, Watching this was going to make kids into killers. Well, this also, when, when this was made in 87, uh, the, the thing is, too, you're looking at the rise of Joel Silver movies, you know, Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and all that type of stuff. Uh, Sylvester Stallone and Schwarzenegger and those guys were the movie heroes. Right. And they're following up by, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme and people like that. And, uh, of course, you had all the canon pictures and, and whatever. But they all were kind of of a certain stripe. And anything with this sort of certainly an, a rural background rather than an urban background mm -hmm. was almost unheard of by this point. Right. Chuck Norris did a little, but he was about it. That He was about it, including, of course, one Steve directed, uh, Lone right. Wolf McQuaid. But... Uh, so Extreme Prejudice kind of, yeah, stood on its own in an interesting way, uh, certainly going to, uh, if you will, the, the background of Texas and what have you, uh, which had also become the background for horror, thanks to, you know, movies like The Hitcher and things like that. Right. And so, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Any sequel, any version. But this is... Uh, you know, this this really was a going down a different pathway that uh, was a, was a little uh, it was traditional and unusual at the same time. Right. 
because it was at a time when people were not paying any attention to tradition. That's right. That's exactly right. And I've always loved the final shot here. We get uh, Nick and Maria do get to ride off uh, into the sunset. Or at least walk off into it. Yes. Walk off towards the mission. And this final little moment is so terrific. <laughs> and I know that, in fact, this is in Santa Clarita, California. This That's is not right. uh, down across the border. Oh, that gets yeah. terrific. And also a nod to a beautiful Jerry Goldsmith score. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's a wonderful score. And, and well, as we said, everybody just kind of came together on this movie. It was made out of, how can we say it, jagged pieces that <laughs> Walter Hill shaved down and made his own and uh, did such a, if you will, just sterling and top flight professional job. I think when I look at this movie, even with, with its production problems and things and it, it cost a lot of money. Uh, it still was a great example, I think, of real old pros getting together and making a movie. Absolutely. Uh, both real old pros on screen and behind the cameras. Yes. And so that's... Uh, and it makes it makes a difference. And... Uh, but... Uh, I'm I'm glad that we're this is going to suddenly get a little bit of a you know rebirth uh, because it certainly deserves it. Yes, and it it was, I think, sadly overlooked uh, to a great degree when it first came out, and boy, it has it has stood the test of time. It just gets better. Yes, it does, and uh, we should mention that here we are uh, around uh, Christmas, twenty twenty one, and. Walter Hill has just finished a brand new Western. That's right, Dead for a Dollar. Dead for a Dollar, with uh, Christoph Waltz and a wonderful cast. And uh, so to know that the things are continuing is uh, just a wonderful, wonderful thing because uh, movies like this are, you know, they are rare. And one of the things, too, of course, we've talked so much about Walter as we're wrapping this up, let us not forget... That he is the producer of Alien and all of its sequels. So that's right. Yes. So his contribution has uh, been at, to uh, well, the, the cinema zeitgeist has been uh, tremendous. Whether it's uh, the Warriors or Forty Eight Hours or Hard Times or uh, Trespass. Whether uh, it's it's very uh, realistic or futuristic or fantastic. Uh, he's contributed, as you say, so much to so many genres and made them all one. Yes. And and he's also a nice guy. Yes, he is. So there, there we go. Well, Henry, thank you so much for hanging with me through Extreme Prejudice. It's been a pleasure, Court. Thank you.